And now, Hollywood Prospectus. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Hold your applause. Shia. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I am a writer for Grantland.com. And on the other line, he just bought some LeBrons. It's Andy Greenwald! Woo! What's up, Aspen? <laughs> 12 years old. I mean, I mean, let's assume not everyone watched Colin Farrell just get on one last night in True Detective, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't alienate them at the beginning of the show, right? God forbid. Uh, Andy, we are going to talk about the first episode of True Detective. We are going to talk a little bit about the new HBO show Ballers, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Ballers! Uh, we might talk about the new Amazon show Catastrophe, which you and I both find delightful. We and, love it. Uh, we wanted, should we start out talking about Sicario? <laughs> that seems like a weird move, but I am jazzed. <laughs> uh, Andy, uh, I'm I'm into Dennis Villeneuve, Villeneuve, whatever, however you want to pronounce his last name. Villa New Wave, the yes. city of New Wave. That, Describe, just that, talk about this guy. That for a Denny Wave. Uh, he is the director of Ensemble's Prisoners, which features one of the great Jake Gyllenhaal performances of all time. Enemy, which features two of the great Jake Gyllenhaal performances <laughs> of all time. Uh, he has been signed up to do the sequel to Blade Runner, which is very exciting. Uh, he's one of the most visually arresting directors out there uh he gives no f's when it comes to how long his stories take to get told right and he has got a film coming out this year called sicario which just had its trailer drop the other day uh this seems like a weird thing to put at the top of the podcast but because i just made andy watch this trailer and because this trailer is basically like what colin farrell does at the end of his little uh his, his restaurant trip in last night's true detective i mean can, can we break this down for a second because i feel like we do a lot of talking on this show we could just stop there we do a lot of talking on this show but we like to celebrate all kinds of art culture yeah, totally cinematic endeavors television storytelling but one of the constants that, that we keep coming back to, one of the things that, that really defines our friendship is a love of a certain kind of adrenalized insanity, right? Yeah. Like, we used to call it, back in the, we were reading, like, old George Pelicanos books and texting each other on flip phones. We used to call it dog crunch, and I yeah, don't right. remember why. Well, because it was harder to text back then, so you had to shorten your text. You, you would just be like, yes. Yeah, we would just, like, say, yes, yes, all in all caps all the time, <laughs> because these were the books where people would just, you know... Like they would fall in some bad luck in their jobs selling stereo equipment, and then they would drink an entire bottle of vodka, load a gun, and then just rob kidnappers. Yes. Which, you know, gets you going because we didn't do any of that except maybe working in, um, you know, retail. But <laughs> this is a constant. And it's funny because, you know, we, no one loves nuance more than the two of us, right? No one. I, we love complexity. We love subtlety. We, we loved Mad Men. But sometimes you just deliver two minutes of just pure, full throttle, just a hit, basically. CIA Brolin with Inception bongs playing in the background while Benicio Del Toro talks about, like, vaccines and and weeding out, like, cartel lords. Um, Wow. Wow, I would say soon to be permanently enshrined on Hollywood Prospectus wall, Emily Blunt just showers the blood off of herself. (laughs) She, uh, I think she got there off of uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Um, we yeah, are we never excited talked about, for this movie. We never talked about Edge of Tomorrow. That is one of the great lost movies of the last few years. But it's this is an exciting trailer. I mean, yes. Do I think it's actually... Like, you know I'm going to go there. I have to go there. You know that the, the subject matter of this is the same as my beloved television show, The Bridge. Boo! 
which you did not like. And there is absolutely part of me as a lover of, uh, as let's go back, as a lover of nuance, as a lover of our great neighbor to the South Mexico, I would like perhaps a little more nuance than other, other than like we have to go over there and murder their people. It's just a trailer, dog. But, well, I'm just saying what the film suggested it's going to be. But that said, like this is the thing that movies, and certainly movie trailers, but certainly movies can do in a different way than, than TV. And sometimes it's hard for me to turn my brain around, right? Where you can just, you can make in a whole movie that's just, a sensation or an emotion yeah or totally. a particular a feel rhythm, yeah a feel and if that feel is the feel of like dropping a plunger on some kind of drug that hasn't been invented yet into your jugular <laughs> seriously then sicario has accomplished that and i'm glad we're it's taking a bath in a bath of bath salts because look i have yes i have no there is no hot take there is just heat right and yeah, i feel like man. that is a beautiful important thing for us to reset ourselves on especially as we go into talking about true detective because if if just filmed entertainment and brolic brolin performances can do this <laughs> then we haven't lost our north star we haven't lost our way right it's good to get excited yeah i'm really excited for that movie but we should talk about your detective we don't want to keep the people waiting um you know i was thinking we should have started a, a standalone podcast called watching the detectives oh that's good there's even a theme song pre-made for it yeah. but you know what i'm sure elvis costello would be very generous with that right I'm sure Elvis Costello has probably already collaborated with a young woman who sings about men's troubles and smoke <laughs> at the end of the episode. But look, I don't know if we should do that standalone podcast, Chris, because I don't think we're going to have the audience for it. I think there's a sea change here. People people were ready to backlash, and I think they backlashed. Um, can I offer a counterpoint to that? Yeah. I think that there is a core group of people, largely those who have Twitter accounts, who <laughs> are being very vocal about their disappointment with the show. Right. But I do not think that that is going to impact the actual viewership of the show. Now, it may not catch fire the way the first season did, yes. but I do think that anecdotally, I think that there's a difference between the people we we sort of follow on Twitter being like, no, I'm not into it, uh, <laughs> or lol, this is so stupid, and the amount of people who are actually going to check yeah. this show out. I hope so. I hope so. Um even though I am often a person on Twitter who's like, oh, I'm not, I didn't really like it. But that's, that said... <laughs> Will you do you the know, rest of the pod in that voice? <laughs> um, <laughs> I kind of um, thought this show was unfair to uh, 12-year-old bullies. Uh, Woody Harrelson. <laughs> um, but look, the reason I say that not is it's not because I'm, you know, it's, it's certainly possible to mistake the, the loudest voices on Twitter with the, the, the general public, but... Mm -hmm. True Detective Season 1 was not a hit in a traditional metric sense. Like, its ratings weren't spectacular. I think that what you were talking about in terms of the obsession and the, you know, the, the, the puzzle piecing together that defined it online and elsewhere is sort of what elevated it to a different level. Now, obviously, artistically, you were much bigger on the things that probably actually elevated it, like the direction and the performances and everything like that. But I would say that I, I'm, I'd be curious to see how True Detective fares in general if it has lost that sort of amateur detective aspect of the true detective does that make sense like yeah in, in my piece i wrote about that i mean i think you picked up on it too and you wrote an excellent recap of the first Thanks. episode that's up on grandlands today but as far as we can tell this season is not going to have the metaphysical mystery that sort of animated people i it's, mean it's it's kind of just a grimy grimy cop show yeah, and that involves there's elements i mean like the bird mask in the uh backseat of that cadillac would suggest yeah. some sort of kind of uh eyes wide sh shut mask wearing going on or eyes um, burned out as the you case know there be. is i think elements of there he obviously had a lot of uh home decor choices that were pretty mm. pretty exotic and i think that uh 
the connection between um, Rachel McAdams, Annie character, and her father, David Morris, who plays sort of a new, new age religious figure, mm-hmm. uh, is going to probably have some impact on the, the season arc, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for me, I wasn't watching for, uh, for, for the occult. I was watching to watch Colin Farrell eat a quesadilla, <laughs> guzzle scotch, drink yep. a Modelo, and then yep. do some cocaine, and then smoke some weed, and then go solve some crimes. Or not oh, solve some but crimes, first, in fact, do beat some the out of another guy on his lawn. Because his kid cut up his son's LeBrons. Listen, I have done some criticizing of Nick Pizzolatto in the past. Yeah, I'll do it in the future. But if he just wanted to respond to all of us (laughs) by drinking a six-pack of Modelo, putting on a ski mask, and then saying, shh, that's okay. Yeah. Because here's the thing. Let's talk about that scene. I'm not... not driving us away which scene the one where he beats up the newspaper guy or the one where he beats up the father of a 12 year old either maybe the latter is just you know that's more conceptually interesting to me i you know i i can really relate to that more yeah um it's but more than that like to love something genre to love crime fiction like we do is to love cliche and to love the embrace of cliche as well as the and the engagement with cliche as well as the, 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 the wrestling with cliche and potentially the defeat of cliche, right? And I feel like that's a lot of what Game of Thrones is about too, where George R. R. Martin is actively playing with things that tickle people's imaginations, right? I mean, yeah. there's, there's a reason why um, Prince Valiant gets shivved at his own wedding because he's playing with the idea of what usually happens. But in as much as he's doing that, there's still a fat sidekick named Sam that everyone loves, just like in, in Lord of the Rings, right? Like, he, there's a little bit of both, and you kind of have to accept that duality. And for us, everyone knows I didn't like True Detective Season 1, but I am in on this in a, in a light, casual, enjoying it way because he is playing with stuff that I care about. Yeah, so and I think those two that, dudes sit in that red vinyl bar, I'm like, that's the kind of bar I like to read about. I like to watch about that. That's fun. And that was a funny scene because, I, you know, when I wrote about True Detective Season 1 at the end of last year. I rewatched yeah. the entire season, and there's it's just remarkable how much it – that season and a lot of the visual and and um, speech things in that show got turned into it, a lot of the verbal things in that show got turned into memes or got turned into sort of shorthand by saying mm-hmm. oh, times a flat circle and blah blah blah, and even some of the shots right. But there was never anything as self consciously true detective as a seemingly pointless slow motion shot of Vince Vaughn sitting somewhere and Colin Farrell sitting across the table from him. I mean, there were like shots in that show last night that were very much like a true detective establishing shot that in fact were never really in true detective season one. You're right. It felt like a cliche of itself in its, this is essentially its ninth hour. Yeah. It is already the the, the flat circle at its time is the snake that devoured its own tail here. And what I thought was the most interesting development of the, or the difference between the characters in this season versus the last season is how much I recognize them from crime fiction, like you're saying, and not necessarily the crime fiction that I think people are understand as like the most popular kind, like say Raymond Chandler, where the detective is the smartest, coolest guy in the room, and he may be an underdog, but only in numbers, not in intellect, not in the certainty that he's going to figure out what happens at the end or whatever. These were more like characters from James Elroy novels who are essentially cowards and bad people. Mm-hmm. And you go on this journey somewhat caring about whether or not they redeem themselves, although whatever redemption they do find is really just like a kind of silver lining of a redemption. Like, oh, I stopped the entire village from burning down kind of redemption. Not not all, not all the houses, but I, I got most of them. 
And then these people, what you wind up caring more about is this sort of web of corruption, both inside of a per- person's soul and in a in the institutions in which they're mm-hmm. attached. And they, they aren't necessarily likable. The world is interesting. The things they say are cool or, or, or fascinating to watch. And the plot is involving. But it's more about feel than it is about, oh, I like this person. Oh, I want this per- This guy, I, this is my... This is my projection of myself. This is how I would be if I was confronted with a, a fast-talking crook. You know, that's not what's going to happen here. And I think you could see that from Farrell's performance. Uh, the way he is watching his kid when he's yeah. when he lets his kid out of the car in the first scene, oh, and his kid's getting taunted, and you see his eyes, and you see like the way his face is twitching watching his kid get bullied. And in your mind, you're like, well, yeah, it's going to be great when he shows, like, he does a little My Bodyguard and he tells this kid, don't you ever touch my son again. And the last, you know, this that scene where he confronts Aspen's father and just goes so far beyond what you would conceive as, as like a reasonable response, is is where this show is going. And it's where these people are. These people are not, like, hinged. And they're not good. And they're not reasonable. And they're not knowable i think that that's one thing that's going to be difficult for people who are only kind of half and half in on the show to get yeah i think that's a great point and i i I just i'm glad you called out that first scene because i have to say i was more drawn into the first five minutes of this true detective than maybe i was with anything in the first season because it was and this is sort of what i meant when i said there's for me there was less i could understand why there might be less to love but for me there was more to like because this was an actor who i think is an incredible actor doing something very, very small bore uh, in a very, you know, non-showy way. And then the story went from there. I mean, it was obviously, I think it was very intentional. It'll be interesting to see how much of this season feels as reactive as a lot of this episode and the next two episodes um, did to me. You know, for people who said that there were only two characters and nothing came from character, it was all just sort of, you know. It was all chasing this this mystery, yeah. It was all smoke. It was all smoke being blown out of Ruskull's, you know, uh, voluminous mustache. Uh, this was a guy in anguish over his son in a much more specific way. Right. Um, but I was in on that. I mean, it, it's extreme, as you said, and it's this is not a show where you could where it's worth saying people wouldn't talk like that or wouldn't be like that because that's not the point. You know, these are swaggering archetypes of I think you said it best in your recap of of different kinds of failure. And when you are invested in seeing the illustration of those archetypes and you're invested in the addition of other types of, of, of tropes like the cigarettes and the whiskey, um, seeing the cops come together at the end of the episode, like that is kind of an Avengers moment. Now, we are not nearly as invested in Colin Farrell or Rachel McAdams or Taylor Kitsch as we are in the Hulk and Iron Man or whatever, but... That's part of the the way these stories go. The crime happened, and now we have the characters, and yeah. they've come together, and now we're going to see where it goes. And now, the real the real season starts in the next episode because this show is going to live or die based on the chemistry of the four people that have been asked to come in and replace two of the most iconic characters in the last few years. Now, now what do you th- what did you think about about Vince? Um, I thought he was a little out of his depth. And I felt like I, I felt like the 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 scene that really just 
completely threw me off with him was the first one with Farrell, where Farrell's come in and he is yeah so present and so much. I mean, even though he's wearing a stupid wig, just you can see he's wounded. He's like t- touching his holster, but he's touching his stomach. He's he's trying to maintain like a veneer of of distance, but clearly is desperate to know what is going on, even though he knows that by accepting this information, he's pretty much signing up for a lifetime of being uh, under this guy's control. And I just felt like Vaughn's delivery was like weirdly yes. airy and, and like, he, he's like all over the place. Yeah. He's it's, slight. You, I think to, to, to buy into this. And at this point it's buying in like, it, you, you know, <laughs> you have to, you can't skate on the bullshit that is at the heart of a lot of genre fiction, certainly at the heart of a lot of Pizzolatto's writing, you have to, you have to just dive into it. Yeah. And Farrell is certainly has no trouble just getting, getting filthy with it. Well, Vaughn seems very airy and light so that when he is faced with a, with a total cliche, one that I think was even ridic- ridiculous, even for me, you know, the fact that he's the slick crime Lord and he calls Ray Raymond, right. because all bad guys call flawed people by their full names. Right. When Vaughn does it, it, it sounds like he's talking to Luke Wilson in old school. You know, like he's being he's being earmuffs, uh, Raymond. Yeah, it, it's basically that. And and so it's interesting. And it, it's just uh, well, we're going to keep talking about this throughout the season. I know I actually haven't actively criticized Pizzolatto much in this podcast, which is rare for me. But I, one thing I legitimately no strings, no asterisks admire is that he really loves he clearly loves actors. And he wrote the part for wrote these parts for these guys. And wanted them in this when I'm sure HBO and everyone else wanted much bigger names or much different names. And I, some of the best performances in movie and TV history have come from times when a filmmaker has fallen in love with an actor and fought for an actor because that filmmaker saw something that other people didn't see. And you could think about Tarantino demanding Travolta as in Pulp Fiction. Um, you could think of Bill Murray and Rushmore, thanks to Wes Anderson. You could think of a hundred more that I'm blanking on in this moment. But I love that he thought of Farrell for this part and you and I love what he's doing with it. I love that he thought of Vince Vaughn for this part because Vince Vaughn is a great performer and I really enjoy watching him. I do think maybe he thought wrong because what is truly great about Vince Vaughn and has been proven again and again and again is when he's electric, you know, when he's allowed to go go off and be bright and alive and comic. And maybe there's a little bit of sadness and mania and danger at the edge of the comedy, but it's not lasting. You know, it's it's swingers, it's old school, it's wedding crashers. It is definitely not like the psycho remake you know yeah i uh i think it would be worth shouting out that i actually did uh i liked kitchen mcadams a lot um i think that they had tough scenes as their uh <laughs> I, I thought you meant i thought you were referring to kitchen mcadams as who she is in the first moment when she comes out of the bedroom <laughs> because someone was touching some stuff oh man that was an interesting introduction to a character uh but i i liked her i actually liked her scene with her dad i thought that was really out there and kind of interesting and i liked kitch um with his boss in the uh, PCH Highway Patrol, mm-hmm. um, where he's just like getting, f- he's trying to do like basically fake mammoth patter, and he's getting very flustered. I, I I'm really looking forward to this season. Um, yeah, I I agree with you that there will probably be a little bit of a drop off because it doesn't have a, a who is who is the Yellow King, but 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 maybe it'll have something yeah. else. And for what it's worth, for people who are concerned about sticking with it, episode two is better than one, three is better than two. I thought, and um. Most of all, the longer the series goes, or at least in first, those first few episodes, you get to see the main thing that I think is different between seasons one and two, which is an investment in a supporting cast. Like this guy, Richie Coster, plays the mayor of Vinci, and 
he's 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 not half in the bag. He's fully in the bag with the top of the bag yeah. closed over his head in every scene. And we get to see his home life in episode three, and it is terrific. And Great. it's like you need to see more of these. If you're going to do something like this, everything has to be turned up to 11, not just the darkness. And I appreciate it when other actors get to have a little fun, too. I also so. have a high hopes for uh, Pizzolatto's feel for the geography and culture of the air of, of the of the show this season um he lives i think in ojai right sure he, he sure does if uh, you've read any of these profiles and uh you know i think he's probably very familiar with you know some of the the dark cap dark dark corners of los angeles and the surrounding area so i'm, I'm really excited yeah i mean well, I've, I have some questions about his sense of geography, but I'll save it. I'll table. But that's the same thing for like, I think you could probably, if you were from Louisiana, would point out some problems with like. Yeah, yeah. But the I, I just. Of, of the no, you're, getting, area. you're taking me the wrong way. I, I kind of I, I want it to be a completely invented California where you can drive to Ojai like overnight. Yes. Yeah. You know, while, or you're gonna be like, I'm in Sherman Oaks, motorcycle. but I need to get over to the beach now. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm thousand percent fine with it. This is, you know. Let me just say again, I said this last week, I'm saying it again, I and you wrote it, and it, I got this from the recap you wrote today, I am really enjoying watching the season of True Detective with a little bit of help from your eyes, because it's better to play the long game on this. I, I think, regard, even the people who, many people who loved the first season were pretty let down by the final episode. We don't really know what this is going to be yet, but I, uh, it's fun to be a little bit on board early. I'm excited by it. Oh, True Detective fans, what's up? Uh, you know, I was thinking we have this big mystery to solve on True Detective, but we, there's another mystery. Where do you go to get your best summer tickets for concerts, baseball games, festivals? Mystery solved. Go to SeatGeek. It's the best way for fans to save money on sports and concert tickets, and it's a 100% free service. SeatGeek aggregates tickets from every major ticket site online and then puts them all in one place, so you do not have to do any sleuthing here. Makes comparison shopping easy. Basically like Kayak.com for concerts, festivals, and sporting events. And when you're ready to buy your tickets, you can snag a great deal right from your phone with just two taps on your app. There is no better way to find great tickets this summer. I am not lying. SeatGeek has a technology called DealScore. It's kind of like a money ball for tickets. It calculates what every ticket in the building is worth and whether the price you may pay for that ticket is a good deal or a bad deal. No other ticketing app has features like this. To redeem your promo code and save 20 bucks on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code HOLLYWOOD in the app. SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app today. It's no mystery. And enter promo code HOLLYWOOD. The SeatGeek app is your ticket to summer sports and concert tickets. And you know what I want to so this is kind of dovetails into what we wanted to talk about next is um, the idea of having a show that, you know, you can have like a safe personal distance from that you don't need to be uh, have it validate everything you think about the world or art or, or anything like that. And sometimes the show can just be a show. And I think I take True Detective a little bit more seriously than most people, but I am always down to have a show that's just like kind of a glorified nightlight. And I don't mean to be belittling, but I kind of felt like that's what Ballers was in a good way. I'm interested that you're taking this tack on Ballers. So I'm I, not I like, spent... yo, I'm going to start a Ballers Tumblr, but I definitely found Ballers to be like a very doable 22 minutes or whatever it was. That is, that, that is absolutely the case. But So I, I spent all day today, Monday, writing a piece that's going to go up at some point um, soon, I hope, about the Brink and Ballers, which... You know, it's a pretty shocking. It's a pretty shocking drop off in HBO in general to go from Game of Thrones, Veep, Silicon Valley to True Detective to The Brink and Ballers. Mm -hmm. 
um, and about how shows like Ballers in the Brink, the Brink, by the way, is just, I think it's just actively awful. Let's just never speak of it again. It's a really bad show. But it's, I think they are indicative of what we might start seeing more of from HBO, which is as they move from being, as they move from having their brand be the best to their brand being, we are competing with Netflix, so we just have to have a lot more. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're ramping up production across the board, and that means there are going to be a lot more B's and C minuses on their air than there have been in the past. I, so, and conversely, so, so for, can I just yeah. just one thing I would mention is that HBO has a fairly long history of you know taking someone to a dance but not necessarily going home with someone, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of really good stuff oh. or not or possibly potentially yes. really good stuff that hbo has taken to pilot or never taken to pilot but own the rights to and then they never got made anywhere else that you know they 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 made a couple episodes of the corrections didn't they they spent yeah that, I mean, so that's if the they thing. need more stuff for more airtime and that means more of the good stuff that their very talented talent development people have you know that their their creative development people have have brought along if that means more of it gets to the air and we get to actually have referendum on whether it was good or not like I w- I'm, I'm into that i agree with that i hope that's the direction they go in i i think it's probably far more likely that they will start taking more extreme flyers on outside stuff i mean for a long time they didn't just own everything and you know it, i mean in terms of bottlenecking their own development process but they 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 owned it in the sense that their studios developed and made everything but now they've started to go outside to so the leftovers and the upcoming westworld are from warner brothers studio so they're definitely casting a wider net um and in that sense, the ballers in the brink are also indicative of a lot of what they have done in the past and probably will continue to do, which is just rely on bigger names to sort of get things over. Like that's the brink. There's a version of the brink where it's a bad show on IFC and there's a version of it with Tim Robbins for some reason. and It's on HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, so but, but ballers, there's an even grander tradition on HBO of, you know, the the brocom of of our list and of entourage sex comedies, where, yeah. where, where sex, people, sports comedy is not where, something that they're unfamiliar with where rich people kind of have problems but not really and then they party yeah here here here's my thing i have, I have a couple things about ballers if i may it's not bad and and i think the second episode is better than the first by a long stretch i think i was frustrated with it because i think it could be better you know peter berg is behind it um dwayne johnson is not a dummy and he's fun to watch uh i will and, i will ante up and say that the rock is like he's like a legit star like that yeah, guy he is, is very watchable he's so watchable and further i think that the two guys who play who are supporting actors on this this guy omar benson miller who plays the this, this sort of the the, the, re- the guy retired too early maybe who's now working uh at in an auto dealership, dealership. Right? yeah and uh and particularly john david washington who by the way is denzel's kid did you know that i, I did not know that that is denzel washington he son. plays what the 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 kid who gets in a he's, fight or he's ricky yeah he's yeah. the he's sort of hothead like deshaun jackson type but not deshaun jackson who's actually on the show right um both those guys are electric they are really fun to watch they're really good actors and are clearly capable of doing deeper stuff so i kind of got frustrated when i went from oh we're eating pills and this guy's dying and their careers are getting threatened to you know the introduction of the agent who's just a zero and he's introduced with a naked woman grinding on him while he does man business on his phone. You yes, know what I mean? I wouldn't necessarily. I'm not. I like. Yes, this this it, show is silly, but I'm just mean like sometimes yeah. when you are got we've gone through the gauntlet of the end of Mad Men, Game of Thrones, yeah. uh, now True Detective, a lot of television, Hannibal, even Deutschland. Like a lot of these shows are very demanding of your attention and your time. No, and totally, so but... something that I have on while I'm like also 
reading like my a magazine and like eating peanut butter stuffed pretzels is uh, is fine you know like, yes um, i agree but here's the, the the metric i've always used though is like I, I love you know i love chopped i used to watch the league for this reason I, I i still dvr new girl like i like shows that know their know their lane and can entertain within that lane i think i'm only responding to the fact that i think ballers could be a better show yeah yeah it's definitely it was definitely entertaining it's not terrible but it's just sort of i i wondered if this was indicative of the new development hierarchy at hbo where it's like well we have this enormous movie star doing a show for us it looks great there's a lot of nudity and fun so that's it we'll just let it be or could it develop into something better and smarter and there's no way we're answering that on this podcast well, look i'm just sticking around to see richard schiff <laughs> you are a big schiff head yeah <laughs> you always have been look man that dude ruled the west wing i feel he, like he uh he's he's always good he was great in the gambler <laughs> what's up with i mean what's up with schiff gets- Cordry gets paid, right? Like Cordry has probably has a nice house, sends his kids to a good school. Yeah, I think he gets points on the package for Hot Tub Time Machine at this point. I'm just saying, like, it's weird because he's not dumb. Like, I feel like he knows on some level that the thing that he does is pretty off-putting to a lot of people, right? Like, uh, being, like being, being a jerk? Just, just being super obnoxious, wheedling jerk and having that be your thing. But I like, guess it's so. Good, but I mean, they're probably not offering offering him, uh, you know, Mark Duplass roles. Oh, Maybe no, they cares. are. I don't know. N- and nor would Mark Duplass roles put those kids through private school. You know what I mean? Right. Now, if you got all of the roles, yeah. Like if you get the, that Duplass money, you can build your own school. <laughs> That's literally the plot of Togetherness. You're right. <laughs> Um, well, so less said about the brink, the better, I guess. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about a good show. Yeah. You know, so the, the faint praise that we gave ballers and it was like, yeah, shows can be good when they're half an hour and it's fine to have them on the background. And then shows can transcend that half an hour and be more than good and be fantastic and can feel like a breath of fresh air. And for as much as we talk about how much we enjoy Benicio Del Toro, Emily Blunt and Josh Brolin rolling, which into is Juarez, a lot, which is a lot. We also enjoy a good rom com, man. Yeah, we we have hearts and uh, beat and bleed. Amazon, kind of out of nowhere. I didn't even know that this was going to happen. Like I don't remember it as part of the pilots thing because I think it's a Channel Four. It, that's right. Co-production it's not, in England. They invested in a a pre-existing British package. So, so to speak. I believe right now you can watch all episodes of this new show called Catastrophe. Um, Six episodes. It is about a torrid one week stand between a. Uh, a British, well, she's Irish, living in London, school teacher, played by Sharon Horgan, uh, and a, an, an American advertising guy, played by Twitter's favorite, Rob Delaney. Um, she finds out she is pregnant, and then he goes back to London, and they try to deal with this. And it's terrific. Yep. It's so funny. It's really and funny. they're both so good, and so good in such interesting, non-expected ways. She, in particular, is amazing. And they I think they, they co-wrote a lot of it. They developed it Yeah, together. it kind of comes from the... I feel like it comes from this tradition of Gavin and Stacey and, and Spaced, where it was shows written by the actors who were in the shows that go on for a limited amount of time. Um, James Corden was in Gavin and Stacey, yeah. right? Uh, I don't That's know right. if he wrote it. Did he? Uh, I don't know if he was involved with it at the beginning. He definitely was with his other... British TV show the um the, the uh, uh I think the, he wrote I think he's in I think he does do anyway point being is that uh it's very good and it is incredibly funny and and has like I don't know like kind of 30 rock level laughs at times in terms of like the 
the pace of the dialogue and the the one-liners, but is so so human at its core. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's, it it reminds me a lot of my favorite comedy of last year, You're the Worst. Yeah, um, on FX, and in in a slightly there's a slightly negative component to that too, which is that in the beginning, as the show's finding its rhythm, the supporting characters feel a lot more broad than the main characters. So they, they, it's the supporting characters that threaten to sort of pull the show into a, a, a more traditional comedy. I think that gets righted as it goes along, and I'm really not complaining about the dude who's basically playing like a married vaping Begbie with kids. Can I ask you a question? That dude's great. Yeah, I know. I like that guy a lot. But let me ask you a question. Yeah. So you're setting up a comedy at a network or at any any television I, platform, right? I am. Like, yeah, I have yeah. a rom-com, and it's about this guy and this this woman, and they meet, and this happens, and they, that's why they have to keep meeting. And they're like, okay, let's fill out the rest of the cast. Let's fill out the supporting characters. It feels to me, watching these shows, that the supporting cast, with few exceptions, like, say, like, New Girl is actually one where it's like everybody on that show you can kind of conceive of as actually being friends. Mm-hmm. For so many of these shows, even for one as good as You're the Worst, that's where it feels like there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And it, it's like they're trying to hit on a Kramer still or a Joey uh, or a, a, like a really out there character that's going to get like I, I laughs, make it... a lot of laughs per screen second. And I, I, I always yeah. feel like that's one of the things that Achilles heel of these shows. I see what you mean. I would I would reframe it because, you know, in both of these cases, Stephen Falk creating You're the Worst and Sharon Horgan and Rob Delaney creating Catastrophe, I don't think there were that many cooks in the kitchen. But I think that what they were doing, and it's kind of reasonable, is they want to assert the humanity of the main characters um, and have us you know, be with them for laughs, but also for more empathetic and human moments. So the more extreme behavior is, is then shifted to the supporting cast. Yeah. Like they have to do the, the crazier things that if the main characters did them, we wouldn't buy them as the main characters. Um, but in the bigger picture sense, when we were talking about the in terms of HBO and, and ballers, like this is just a sign of the bounty of good TV that we have, but also the struggle that the larger, more traditional networks are, are facing, because this is they're just getting outmaneuvered here, right? Like you're the worst, and catastrophe are both rom coms. I mean, the plot of catastrophe is knocked up basically. Yeah, um, you're the worst is about people who do bad things and only are you know, but suddenly make each other feel good, and none of that is is breaking any records or blowing in the, anyone's mind it's really like like basically like all good story it's it's just all in the execution and how you do it but as we saw last fall with the with the broadcast networks who who premiered and then canceled a whole raft of rom-coms you just can't do it in a in a in a you know in a you can't room write a good rom-com you can't just cast people and hope it works it's crazy how many of these shows it's like it's like they're playing blackjack and everybody's starting out with the same base hand. Like everybody, yes, everybody's right. at 13 and it's, it's just really like, are you going to hit an eight or are you going to hit a 10 and or are you going to hit a two? You know, it's or, like, or, or are you going to focus group for three months? What you should do next. Right. A good example of that. Like I will really seriously watch pretty much any sitcom, at least for an episode. And I can't, now I can't even, it was so forgettable. I can't remember the name, but it was the Elisha Cuthbert, um, Nick Zeno oh. show that was on the uh, one big happy one big happy and I watched it was produced by Ellen or executive produced by Ellen yes, DeGeneres right. and it was like very funny person Elijah Cuthbert Alicia like, Alicia Cuthbert too she's there she's in it um, Nick Zeno charming enough and then they just were like let's let's just keep adding on ridiculous stuff to it and they busted right like I don't think that show's coming back am I right 
You're right. Um, another one would be like Undateable, which is that Chris Delia show, which is like, let's start with a premise of a bunch of people who are just perpetually single, but let's make everybody completely unwatchable, you know? Although um, that's coming back and as a live weekly show. A live show? Yeah, they did a live show as a stunt and it did well. And so it's now a weekly live show. But that's one of NBC's three comedies and it's on Friday. Right. Night. So it's these are these shows that they like, but that the the base, like, the underlying DNA of those two shows is not altogether that different than You're the Worst well, in Catastrophe. But here's the thing. We're in a moment with TV where you have to be as noisy as possible to get noticed. You know, we are in a, a Game of Thrones universe, even on the networks, and you have to stand out, so you have to be big and noisy. And comedies don't work like that. Yeah. The best comedies are come from a singular point of view, even though obviously you know many of them are written by a group of very funny people. But they have to have a, a strong aesthetic point of view at the top, and you have to have great, rare chemistry between the people you put in it and that's basically it that's kind of simple but it's interesting i was thinking about catastrophe after watching it this weekend and thinking about it in terms of hbo which is hbo couldn't do that now they're actually in the sharon horgan business she wrote and is i don't know if she's running or if she's executive producing their new comedy divorce that sarah jessica parker is starring in so i'm very excited about that because sharon horgan is hilarious but they couldn't do catastrophe because hbo you know, needs to be seen a certain way. So they can't just say, okay, Channel 4, here's your modest thing yeah, that you but, guys I mean, did for nothing. Was, I mean, in terms of, because of why? I mean, like, how is it any worse guy, any worse prospects than something like getting on? Well, no, it's, I mean, it's obviously, it's a, it's a web of finances or whatever, but oh, I'm sure. saying that, okay. I mean, in, get, in, in getting on, that's a very good example. The difference between getting on is that getting on was a British show that was remade by the guys who did Big Love, who had a development deal at HBO. So that was developed in-house. My, my point is that, sh- that not that Sharon Horgan and Rob Delaney could have done this for HBO because they could have and it probably would have looked different. It's that they were doing it with Channel 4, whoever they were doing it with. Channel 4 was looking for an American partner at some point. And HBO probably, this is all speculation, I'm sure they her- took a meeting or heard about it. And they were like, that seems very modest and is better suited somewhere else. I'm not saying they're wrong, but it's a better comedy than a lot of what they've developed. Amazon, yeah. because they don't have an identity still, they just need content. Amazon is much more nimble. You know, they can be like, well, sure, we don't. No one, no one knows what to expect from us, so we'll just add this. It's, it, it, there's no way it's not value positive because no one knows what they're going to get. And if suddenly their brand becomes charming imported rom-coms, well, then there'll be a lot more of them, and then the standards for them will change. Yeah. Yeah, but, it's uh, interesting. But it, it's interesting to watch, but mostly it's just delightful to watch. I, this made me so happy. There are only six episodes. Yeah, you it's get such a low it. commitment. It's basically three hours of your time. You will be hooked by the end of the first episode. It is, I think it has some... Oh, you know what I think would be a good... Uh, sense of humor kind of comparison would be veep in the, in its dryness yeah and maybe its... not as caustic or maybe not as like but it's the same sort of facility with language yes although the one thing that is interesting about catastrophe that that i noted my wife noted after watching it is they're kind especially rob delaney's character is very nice yes. and, and nice doesn't usually work in comedy and he says very funny things and can be very inappropriate. Right. But he's essentially very nice. To well, they've Sharon but they've character. surrounded him and, and Sharon with a bunch of people who are not nice. So, yes, uh, including the aforementioned Begbie and uh, um, what's her name from uh, uh, Extras, who plays a very um, oh the homeopathic, homeopathic. <laughs> yeah therapy person. Yeah. Um, okay, so what else, man? Um, I'm trying to think of like, oh, you know what I was going to talk to you about. Yeah, I want to hear it. Uh, so I went and caught up on some blockbusters this weekend. This, this just sounds like an American weekend you had. I'm well, proud of you. Rolling, I was rolling solo. Uh, so I went and saw Jurassic on Friday. And then I hadn't seen Ultron, so I went and saw that Saturday. Um, Ultron, okay, let's put that to a side for a second. What do you think? I, you haven't seen Jurassic, but... No. Um, what do you think about its 
really pretty eyebrow singeing success. About Jurassic World? Yeah. Uh, I thought that we ran two very, very good pieces on Grandland about it. I thought that um, Brian Curtis, who's a longtime fan of the franchise and of Michael Crichton and Steven Spielberg, wrote a pretty very accurate piece that I imagine to be accurate piece on why it was successful on a just like on a personal people and fan level, like what it paid homage to in the spirit that it got right. Yeah. Uh, actually, I thought three pieces because I thought Wesley Morris's piece was really just a great piece of film writing, too. But Mark Harris's piece where he's basically like, this is his latest dystopic, you know, missive from the present, which I think is sad that he has to keep writing it, but he's very good at it with him basically being like, OK, now we're really screwed because whatever rule book we thought we were working with, with franchise franchises and empire building and, you know, the Marvel method, that's gone now because this movie made by an unheralded indie director that it just had had Chris Pratt and dinosaurs just made a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. It made a billion dollars. That's crazy. So. On the one hand, it's not really surprising, and it's sort of shocking that no one thought about this, considering stuff like Sharknado gets so much attention, and it's intentionally bad. So just putting dinosaurs, which are perpetually the most popular thing, into a movie is is, is pretty much a slam dunk. But in terms of what it means about just well, mining... Mark's piece is very, very interesting to me because of the weekend I had, and it's like, I could explain to you yeah. the majority of Jurassic World in about f- seven seconds, yeah, and it would take me... 17 minutes to explain what happens in Ultron. That's right. That's a very good point. And, and it's so like, you wonder why these things... This is interesting, too, because I think comic fans... Okay, so one of the things that's been interesting about the need to reboot, and it's like you're always wanting to reboot Spider-Man so that we can start from the beginning and have a new kid and just tell the same damn Uncle Ben story over and over again, or whoever that guy is, right? Yeah. Um. I wonder whether or not there will be some fatigue, not because of the tropes that get brought in of just like, oh, a city's being blown up or like some evil, but because as comics go on, they get really complicated. There's a lot of story. This is exactly right. And this is going to start happening very soon if it hasn't happened. And Ultron is like, I I mean, I saw it. It was a full theater, which is insane, you know, on a Saturday night. Um, I thought I was going to go and it was going to be empty. It was Yeah, this is a month and a half after it was released. But it was a packed theater. And people, like, laughed and, like, you know, spoiler, when the person dies in the movie, people groaned and, like, oh, no. But you i would love to because i would love to to ask people walking out of that theater hey tell me what just happened in that movie explain explain like what vision is explain what the thor's asgard dream sequence was about tell me all about like what is going on like what is going on with like with shield versus uh what the hell is the other one Hydra. Hydra versus like who's collecting the infinity gems. It's like I get it. it I you know, I I understand it, but it's not it's not easy to digest. No, and you know, part of the thing about comic books that is often considered a flaw, but it's actually sort of from a distance this amazing amazing um aspect of of what they are and what they become is that they build these intricate insane universes that accumulate weight. Yeah. and story but mostly weight and they are constantly being swept aside and reinvented and rebooted and so that language has infiltrated hollywood on all levels but the way that it's done and the ease with which it's done in comic books is not easily recreated on screen um you know sony learned that the hard way when they sort of thought that we could just do well we'll just do spider-man again with someone who's three years younger you know and we'll just do it again. and then afterwards we'll just do it again yeah and then they were not able to do that and all the stuff all of marvel's enormous success on the screen at the moment 
uh, in the background, the comic book company, which is finally stable thanks to some smart management that they probably you know extends through the the film enterprise. They seem to really understand what the good idea. They seem to be understand their role in a different way, which is we're going to generate crazy big out there ideas. The very best ideas are going to be upstreamed into the movies and TV universes. They are now this summer. They're rebooting for the first the entire universe for the first time in seventy five years. Like everything is changing, and so you mentioned Spider Man. So the is there an the, event that catalyzes that? Or are they just like we're yes. starting over? Yes, there's a uh, so this I can't believe I'm, I'm going to get into this. So I've been re- so basically I did want to go on here at one point and say that this uh, the Marvel app, Marvel Unlimited app, which you know I'm sorry I'm shilling for our company Disney here, but this is I don't get it for free. So it's like nine ninety nine a month. And you can just read comic books like from the history of Marvel plus new ones just with a five month delay. And I would think it's the it is basically the best service there is in the Internet if it worked and it works like one out of every 15 times I turn it on. But so they so they put this very ambitious writer named uh, named Jonathan Hickman on Avengers uh, like three years ago. And he started writing this this enormous, impossibly big epic that spanned two Avengers books and eventually like almost all of Marvel. And it jumped forward. What's his epic name? Well, it started. It had a lot of different names, but basically, the point of it was that the universe was ending. Okay. That that different different universes, alternate realities, were smashing into each other, and every time one of these incursions happened, only one world could survive. And the smartest people in the Marvel universe, like Tony Stark and Mister Fantastic and the Beast from X Men, who are all in one universe, even though they're not in the movies, right? Got together as a group called the Illuminati, secretly to try to kill the other worlds first, so they could survive. Okay. But they're failing. And anyway, the story went on and on and on. And then finally, there was the last incursion with the Ultimate Universe, which was a separate universe that Marvel had been publishing with like younger versions of their characters, including a Spider-Man who was a young uh, African-American and Latino uh, teenager named Miles Morales. He yeah. became very popular. This The universe is smashed together. And this summer, it doesn't exist. And they just have a universe called Secret Wars, where like all the versions from Marvel's history, so like alternate universe zombie characters and Old West characters and versions of the characters from the 80s are fighting. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, a new universe is going to be born that theoretically is the best parts of everything, including Miles Morales is now the official Spider-Man. Okay. Uh, all of that is, from a storytelling perspective, if you don't have the fanboy allegiance, is pretty cool. Like, that's what comic books can do, right? Right. They can think on this enormous level, but... What you're talking at, I'm sorry for that enormously nerdy digression. Well, it's it, but what you're, what it you're goes a long way the, towards the, the proving fate, the point that we're yes, kind of trying to the, make. The fate of corporations cannot be governed by that sort of creative. Reason. And they, they, you know, like I, I just definitely felt while watching Ultron, I was like, clearly, this is about as they put as much into that movie as you possibly could into a two hour and twenty minute movie that still had like twenty minute set piece scenes. And you still feel like the seams are showing, you know, yes, like, and, 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 and that's why ultimately I think the individual movies are more successful because so far they've been able to make them be consistent within themselves so that, you know, the second Captain America movie was kind of a fun conspiracy thriller and Thor movies are supposed to be high fantasy and Guardians of the Galaxy is a better example because that was a good movie. That was just sort of yeah, and I, there's wrong. no evidence in the box office to suggest there's any kind of fall off. I was just thinking like as also, you know, I mean, people of this generation of people who have been watching these Marvel movies for the last eight years or so, yeah, they've gotten kind of attached to certain ways of things happening. I mean, you know, they they like the interplay between Downey Evans and Hemsworth, and they like uh, Ruffalo and and Johansson, and and even Renner had a couple of lines in this movie. And at the end of this movie, and I think from my understanding of future 
the future of the Avengers yeah. is that there's a lot of conflict and then there's a lot of separation. And, um, and theoretically, and, there's a lot of change because, for example, it's worth noting that in this reborn Marvel universe, Sam Wilson, the Falcon, who's played by Anthony Mackie in the movies, is Captain America. Right. And Chris Evans has talked about kind of having a time limit on being this part. So they are they are greasing the skids for enormous change if they're able to pull it off. Right. And I, I would just so this is all a very long way of saying if you just go up to somebody and you're like Chris Pratt and dinosaurs are real. They're probably like, yeah, cool. Okay, I'll go see that. So what's I, I agree, but the, the, I guess the 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 rub here is what is as just purely primally internationally popular and successful and just a guarantee as dinosaurs, right? Like because because you see that Universal has this success, but they've been desperately trying to convene a writers' room to make their mar- their monster movie properties into yeah, something. Yeah, and the like, same like thing is going on with uh, Transformers, and... where they they have a writers' room that they're talking about like what could we do with the Transformers universe. In um, Legos, yeah. I mean, but I don't good luck. think any you know, of them. Like, I mean, I don't know that we need nine Ghostbusters movies. It was uh, the Ghostbusters one is the biggest weird, weird, weird one to me because I think I think the Paul Feig uh, all female version of it. That's a I think it's a terrific idea. It's a fantastic cast, right? It's 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 Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy and Leslie Jones and uh, um, Kate McKinnon. Uh, Kate McKinnon. I love all of them, and they just cast Thor as the Annie Potts receptionist, which is very smart and clever, but. Let's talk about Ghostbusters. I mean, it obviously had a big cultural footprint, but that was one amazing movie, basically amazing because of Bill Murray's performance, right? Yeah. Which was mostly ad-libbed, and then a lame sequel, and that was it. And And then a third one that got talked about for 20 years or something. Yeah, the sequel was 26 years ago, so it's not like... I mean, yes, Jurassic Park was probably dormant too long considering how much money dinosaurs could make internationally, but it's not the same thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, it's... It's not, and I, 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 I imagine there will be. I mean, there's gu- guarantee there will be sequels, sequels to Jurassic World, but I hope that there's not a Jurassic World universe. It, I don't even know what that would. Jurassic Universe is obviously the name of a sequel, right. but I don't know what. Like, I hope, what would it or be? if there is, I hope it's just a movie about Judy Greer and her life after sending her kids to Jurassic World <laughs> and getting them back. Um, we should probably wrap it up. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, we'll talk some True D. I don't know. We'll talk some other stuff. We'll figure we're it out. Ta- we're going we're to talk other stuff. We might get back some books. People like that. That was nice. I might, <laughs> I might mess around. And, I might, I might mess, mess around and call Jessica Chastain. Uh, uh, I mean, call Bryce Dallas Howard Jessica Chastain again. And see I if thought that was noticing. a joke. The best thing is, it would have been such a good joke, but I'm going to admit to you right now that I was just... I was just I was just on one. You I hold yourself accountable. That's what I like about you. That's what I do on this show. Um, yeah, we might even take some take some. Read uh, yeah, well, maybe we will take some. Maybe it's mailbag time. We've never we'll done talk that. about that. Barmel no, and Mays so, get a lot of mileage out of that. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> let's 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 just let's just go after them. All right, Mang. Uh, I'll see you next Monday. Great job, Baranski. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes or. Go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.